0: Oh, hey, how are you guys? Good, good, good. My throat's a little, I don't know, strange, so I'll try to really pronounce, and hopefully I won't lose my voice the whole time that we're here together, but I'm Carter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Glad you're with us today, whether you're in person or joining us online. Glad you're here. We're in the second week of our series studying the Old Testament book of Jonah, so if you want to turn to Jonah chapter 2, you're welcome to do that. Uh, Find it on your device or turn there in your Bible. How many of you guys thought uh, Jonah chapter 1 was helpful last week? Anybody think that connected well with you in your life? Yeah? Okay, good, a few people. The rest of you guys didn't find it helpful at all, I suppose, right? (laughs) No, I thought it was personally convicting and challenging, but very encouraging for me as well. And I think it'll only get deeper as we get into chapter 2, pun intended, all right? That's another dad joke for you today, because he's going to be in the belly of the fish, down in the depths of the sea, right? And the misunderstanding about Jonah is always with the fish. I talked about this a little bit last week, right? But people always try to look in at it and they're like, man, we've got to make excuses for the fish. Oh, we got to figure out how it's possible that he was in the fish. How did he survive for three days and three nights in the fish? You know, it's always the fish, right? But if you can't get past the fish, it's a lot like the middle schoolers I used to teach when I was teaching biblical sexuality to, to these middle schoolers back in Greensboro when I first started in my career we, we, I taught them beginning in Genesis, chapters one and two, talking about how God created two genders, male and female, in his image. And of course, they always got hung up on how he did that. You know, he put Adam in a deep sleep and he took out one of his ribs. And they're like, he took the rib out? Oh my gosh, how did that happen? What about the rib? How did, how did it work? Did he feel it? Was it really his rib or was it his side? Like, how did this happen? You know, they got caught up on the rib. And I was like, hey, guys, hey, hey, listen. The rib isn't the point, okay? (laughs) That is not the point of the story. The point of the story is to show us that God created men and women in his image to be like him in the world. That's the point of the story. So don't get caught up in the secondary details that really don't matter that much, you know? The same is true of the fish here in Jonah, all right? Don't get caught up on the fish. The fish is not the point. God's just using this as his supernatural tool to save Jonah so that he can repent and turn back to God. So Jonah actually gives us the point of the text today that we do need to walk away with. And this is our main point for today, and it's actually not just the overarching point of Jonah's book itself. It's actually kind of the overarching point of the entire Bible. This is what it is. Salvation belongs to God. That's That's the whole point of really everything that we believe as Christians. But he gives us the main point right here in the text, so don't get caught up on the details. God will do whatever it takes to save those whom he will save, including using a storm, using a fish, or if we go to other parts of the Bible, making the sun stand still, or, or you know, enacting plagues on an enemy nation, supernatural things like that, or, or he'll use natural things like the evil or the pain or the suffering that you might experience in everyday life. You know, he'll use all of that and more to show us that salvation belongs to him and him alone. It's not a truth that we generally like to hear as Christians or as believers or as as humans, really. But it's what fundamentally makes Christianity different and and unique compared to all the other worldviews and religions that we have that are out there. Most people think there are two kinds of people in the world, the religious and the irreligious. Everybody is either is somewhere on that spectrum, you know? Either somebody's very irreligious, so they don't believe in a higher power at all. They're an atheist, they're a Darwinian evolutionist, something like that, or they're on the other side of the spectrum. They're very religious. They go to church every week, they pray, they read their Bible, they do good things, or they're somewhere in between on that spectrum. But as Christians, we believe something different. We believe salvation belongs to God alone. So there's irreligious people, there's religious people on the other side, and then somewhere, somewhere else, there's Christians because we don't fall into that category at all. Christianity is something totally different. See, the irreligious don't think they need salvation. The religious think they can earn salvation, and they have to earn salvation for themselves. We know salvation belongs to God. I could use uh, an analogy here for a birthday present, so hopefully this won't muddle it up too much, but just try to go. If it, if it helps you, then I, that's good. If it doesn't help you, just throw it out, okay? But it's, it's kind of like the irreligious folks are the people that don't want a birthday present. Have you ever met any of those kind of people that don't want you to celebrate their birthday? They don't want a present? They who cares if they're another day older, another month older, another year older? doesn't matter. There's nothing special about that, right? They don't think they need or even want a present from you, and they kind of got a chip on their shoulder about it. They're angry about it. Don't give them a present. Don't celebrate it. It's kind of how ir- irreligious people seem on the one hand, but then religious people on the other hand are like, they're the entitled ones that think they deserve a present for their birthday. like, it's my birthday. you got to give me a present. I've earned it somehow. And you're like, no, you don't earn presents. You can't earn a birthday present just because you've turned another year older doesn't mean you deserve it somehow. You haven't earned that, right? It's entitlement. You don't just get a present because you didn't do anything. just turn another year older like every other human being in the world, you know? Instead, we should see how special a birthday is, okay, and hope for a present, but realize we don't deserve one. It's not a perfect analogy, but I hope you get the idea that that's what Christians ought to be like. Salvation belongs to God. This is We do need that. We need salvation. We need God to step into our lives because we know that our purpose is to know and be known by God. He gives us purpose and meaning and eternal life, but it's also completely initiated by him, carried out by God himself. There's nothing we can do to earn that. There's nothing we have done to earn it other than just receive it it's a gift you know that's christianity salvation belongs to god and he's offering it as a gift to us and today we're going to see jonah come to that realization himself and we're going to see three things through the story that we'll cover today we first have to recognize that we have a need for his salvation in our lives then we have to recognize what salvation requires and then we finally have to see what kind of response salvation demands So we're going to go through those three things, the need for salvation, the requirements for salvation, and the response that salvation demands. All right. So let's go ahead and get into this together. But We're going to do chapter 2, but let me start back in chapter 1 just to get our bearings here, chapter 1, verse 17. This is what it says. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You remember this from last week. He's in the fish now. And it's important to note that before we read chapter 2, Scholars think this reference to three days and three nights is a reference to Israel's concept of death. They would say that it took three days and three nights to get to Sheol, which for them was the Hebrew concept of the land of the dead. So that's the place where dead people would go. When they died, you'd go to Sheol, is what they believe. So three days and three nights is this poetic way that Jonah said he was dying. He was heading down toward death, And despair literally, figuratively, spiritually. We saw that in our story last week. You know, Jonah was spiraling downward. He went down to Joppa to get onto a ship. He went down into the ship to go to sleep. He went down into the raging sea when the sailors threw him overboard. Now God sent a fish and he's down in the belly of the fish, down in the depths of the sea, down in the very depths of Sheol, he says here. And I don't want to move past that too quickly today. You know, maybe some of you guys are there right now. I know people come in here each week, listen online each week. You're dealing with different kinds of stuff. Maybe you're here today and you're just really wondering whether life's worth living or not. Maybe you're in the depths of despair, like Jonah. You know, maybe you've lost someone that you love recently, or maybe you hate the stage of life that you're in and you're tired of waiting for God to change it for you. Maybe you hate yourself for some reason, or maybe you hate the way that you look, or something like that. Maybe it's some other reason for you that you're in the depths of despair. You feel like you're going down, down, and down, and maybe there's you know, a reason that you're hitting rock bottom is what it feels like. You feel like you've died or you're dying inside. There's only one thing that's going to satisfy and comfort you, and that's the thing that Jonah realized here in his story. It's God's gift of salvation to us. And Jonah finally gets it here in chapter 2, so let's read the whole thing because it's a poem And this will help us get in, and we'll talk through the three points that we have for today. Chapter 2, verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. He said, I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet... I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love, But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. All right, so as poems tend to be for all their authors, Jonah wrote this poem out of an overflow of his heart in this moment. You know, it's a prayer much like a psalm, and he's crying out to God in this, recognizing that he has a need for God's intervention. He has a need for salvation. And notice the language that brings him up out of the depths here. You know, he's been in the pit, in the depths of Sheol. He's been dead inside. But Jonah's faith begins to rise here, doesn't it? He he raises his eyes to God's temple, he says. And then God raises his life up out of the pit, and then his prayers go up to God. And then he literally gets spit back up onto the dry land. That's a picture of salvation. And what salvation does, it's maybe a gross picture of salvation a little bit, right? Because there's vomit involved. But at least it's a picture of salvation for us. It's coming back up out of those depths of despair, out of depression, out of chaos, out of whatever dark life you're living before God's salvation in your life. It's coming back up to the land of the living, into God's presence. But what initiates that for Jonah here? Well, it starts with a recognition that he has a need. That's what it begins with. And so that's our first point for today. You can write down if you're taking notes. We need God's salvation. He recognizes that in verse 8. Those who cherish idols abandon their faithful love. You know, this is not the greatest of translations, I don't think, because as I read commentaries on this and listened to other guys on this, really that faithful love there in verse 8 isn't describing our faithful love or Jonah's faithful love. It's actually describing God's. It's God's, just like we read in Psalm 100, it's God's faithful love to us. So what, it, what it's saying is that when you cherish idols, you're abandoning God's love for you. You're abandoning his mercies for you. You're abandoning your hope of his steadfast love in your life. In other words, those who chase idols abandon the gift of salvation that God extends to those who will trust in him. His salvation is that faithful love. And Jonah realizes that, that what he was doing was idolatry. He had been worried about Nineveh, right? He had the speck, you know? He was like worried about their speck in their eye. Finally, he realizes he's got a log in his own, and he realizes that what he's doing is idolatrous. He's putting his hope in something that's not God, you know, and made trivial things to be ultimate things. He cherished idols, he said. He loved idols instead of loving God. And by doing that, he rejected God's gift of his faithful love. And everybody has idols. Every, every one of us have idols that we like to run to. It's what happens when you reject God as your object of worship and you try to put something else in place of God. You know, worship is whatever you ascribe worth to. And that's the literal etymology of the word worship. It's worth ship. Whatever is worth something to you. So idolatry is ascribing ultimate worth. anything other than God whenever we do that we're committing idolatry and we're cherishing idols rather than loving God's faithful love for us we all do that at times we're all bent toward worship it's part of our nature we're supposed to be worshiping God but now we, we look for other ways to worship other things so we'll find something or someone to direct our worship toward usually it's not God it could be bad things could be things like illicit sex or drugs or narcissism or control or things like that anything that harms ourselves or others could be things like that are good you know like our kids or our grandkids or money or influence or power those are all good things we just take those things whatever they are and we turn them into god things you've heard that said before probably right we put them as ultimate in our lives we ascribe ultimate worth to those things essentially it's what we love the most. We're cherishing them. What do we cherish? That's worship. And Jonah saw that his heart toward Nineveh was idolatry. He loved the idea of vengeance and their ju- getting justice for them more than he loved the idea of himself needing justice. He saw that they needed it, but he didn't see himself needing it. What's also interesting is that Jonah says idolatry is abandoning God's faithful love here. And when we turn to other things like this for comfort and love and value and purpose, we're believing that they will save us. We we want their salvation at that time. The irony is whenever we try to find salvation in anything other than God, it always results in this downward spiral that Jonah's experienced. He ran away. He went down to the depths of Sheol. It always ends that way for us, every single time. And I think you guys probably know that. I think we all have experienced those moments where we just go down to the depths of despair. And it's, it's almost always because we're not living the way that God has designed us to live, every single time. There's not one time we'll live for God and regret it. But I'll tell you what, there's always a time that we'll regret living for idols, always. So what Jonah realized is that what put him down in the depths was, yeah, God. God did that. We talked about that last week. He, put it, he, he did the storm. He did the fish. But really, Jonah finally starts to realize he's, he's the one that put himself there. He, his disobedience and rebellion is the thing that actually put him there. He's the one that ran. He's the one that went down into the ship. He's the one that tried to ignore the storm. He's the one that cherished idols, rejected God's faithful love. So you can write this down. We put ourselves in the pit with our own sin. That's what happens. We're the ones that put ourselves there. And ironically, we tend to get this exactly backwards. You know, we look in at evil in the world and all the bad stuff that happens, and we're like, God's the one that did that. We think God's the one that's abandoned us. But the evil we see, even the natural evil, like tsunamis and earthquakes and wildfires and stuff, even those things are a result of our rebellion. We broke God's good creation. Yet God is the one working through all of that to bring us back to himself. I recently heard a prominent astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I love listening to. He's a very smart guy in a lot of ways, but he said something that I thought was so foolish, unfortunately. He said he didn't see evidence for a God who's both all-powerful and all-good. He said, because in a world full of pain and suffering and natural disasters where the earth's trying to kill us, either God isn't powerful enough to stop those things or he's not good enough to want to stop those things. See, I totally get the sentiment. I, I, I get that. But the problem is the Bible teaches us God created it all to be very good without death and without chaos. And human rebellion is the thing that came in and broke it all. The reason we have death and chaos is because we're the ones that rejected God and his authority. And now there's a curse over everything. And God is actively trying to undo that now. He's, he, all of human history is God undoing the curse. We're the cause of it, not God. God's actually working through the chaos and through the death to bring us back to himself. And yeah, he he might make the chaos a little worse at times to wake us up, maybe to get our attention, to show us we have a need. He's always ready to receive us back should we wake up and see the need that we have, see the need that we have for God's salvation in our lives. So you can write this down as well. Salvation requires repentance. It requires our repentance. Repentance. Repentance just means recognizing our own fault and then turning back to God for the help that we need. We have to recognize we have a need. This is our only part in salvation, if you want to think of it like that. Salvation belongs to God, yeah. But we have to believe it and let it apply to our lives and receive that gift that he's extended to us. And it's not a work that we do. It's not something that we do to earn salvation. It's just a belief that we have. We finally recognize that we have a need, that God will meet. So many people turn this thing into religious ideology, but you really can't do that, because salvation is fundamentally a gift that you and I don't deserve. So either you accept the gift, or you reject it, but you don't earn it. You don't work for it. There's nothing you can do to strive for it. You just simply take it, or you don't take it. And to put it in perspective, you're either irreligious and reject the gift, or you're religious and think you have to pay for it yourself, or... You become a Christian, and you just accept the gift that you know you don't deserve, but you believe God is extending to you in his faithful love. See, God doesn't force salvation on us. We have to see our need, because he's ultimately after our heart, like we talked about last week. And he wants our love, and love is a choice. It's not something that can be compelled. But when we do repent, James 4 tells us that when we humble ourselves and put ourselves low, then he will lift us up. That's what salvation is all about. But what does salvation require of God? See, that's what it requires of us, is to repent. But here's our second point for today. Salvation requires sacrifice from God. Salvation requires sacrifice, because what fixes Jonah's problem here? Well, he recognizes his need, but the one brings him up out of the depths? In verse 4, this is what it says, And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. And then later on, he says something about the temple as well, right? He said, I've been banished from your sight because of my rebellion, my idolatry. I finally realized I have a need, yet I remember that you made a way for me to come back to you. I remember your holy temple. See, that's what the temple represents in Hebrew culture. It was God's literal presence in the world. He was there with his people. That's what it was supposed to be about, his presence, his presence with them, dwelling with them. There's a place where a Hebrew person would go to reconcile with God through sacrifice. and they would, they would offer the sacrifice to God on behalf of their sins. And the way it worked was an innocent animal would bear the consequences of sin on behalf of the person who'd done the sinning. So the person who rebelled against God would take this innocent animal and they would kill the animal and their sins would symbolically be applied to that animal and that animal would die the place of that person. So that human sin costs the life of an innocent animal. And we might look in at that and say, man, that was brutal. Like, what in the world? Why would this be the case? Or that's stupid. Like, how could human sin be applied to an animal? How could an animal, the death of an animal, take away human sin? And listen, the New Testament authors recognize that it couldn't. There's clarification for us here. It was never intended to take away sin, actually. That's, I think so many people get that wrong about the Old Testament, the sacrificial system they'll think okay god did it this way and now he's doing it a different way really the author of hebrews actually clarifies this for us it says the old system under the law of moses was only a shadow a dim preview of the good things to come not the good things themselves the sacrifices under the system were repeated again and again year after year but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship as in they were never intended to right If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins for year after year. For it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hello. That's why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. See the Old Testament system was never able to save anybody. It was never intended to. It was pointing ahead to the true sacrifice that would come and take away the sins of the world. His body, the body of Jesus. See that's it's a true exchange there, right? Because Jesus' perfect, sinless human life to cover our imperfect and sinful human lives so that we could be made right with God by his grace. You see, it's interesting that you don't see Jonah asking for God to just absolve his sins and just overlook his rebellion, right? He doesn't just simply say, hey, God, please forgive me and overlook my disobedience in this passage. He looks to the temple because he knows what it's supposed to cost for his sin. People people often ask, why can't God just forgive sin without a sacrifice? Why, why, Why does God have, why does there have to be this exchange of lives, Well, because he can't just let evil go. That would be unjust. It's not good for society. It's not good for the victims of evil. Evil deserves punishment. I think we all intuitively know that, right? If you just let a rapist go free and overlook his evil actions, evil wins. Because there's no accountability for that person, and he'll likely do it again. You have to deal with evil. You can't just overlook it. But We also can't just go straight to hatred and vengeance either. Because if we hate and we kill in response to evil done to us, man, evil wins again. Because evil has produced more violence and evil. And so dealing with evil is kind of a little bit of a conundrum. Because if we don't forgive, it'll just eat us up inside, and we'll hate, and evil wins. But if we let go and don't deal with it and just overlook it and turn a blind eye, evil wins again. So what's the answer there? Well, the answer is what God gives us here. It's grace. It's actually God's sense of justice set underneath of that category of justice in the Bible, but it's his grace. You can write this down. God's grace is how he has dealt with evil. That's how God deals with evil because it's his grace. God does both here. He forgives evil, but he holds evil accountable. He forgives, but demands punishment. He's made a way for both to be true with Jesus. So now it's not an animal sacrifice and a physical temple that we have to provide we don't have to take the sacrifice now. Jesus' own body that God himself has provided is the sacrifice. Now maybe you remember the story of Jesus going into the temple and flipping over the tables and driving out the people who were selling sacrificial offerings and exchanging money there. You know God's method of reconciling his people, the temple, had been religified. You know, the, the Jewish leaders had religified it because they were making money off of selling the sacrifices, almost like the Catholic indulgences a few hundred years later, in the Middle Ages, after this. So the temple had become this contractual thing in Jesus' day. Hey, just give some money, give a sacrifice, and you'll receive forgiveness. That's what it looks like. That's essentially religion. Give us money, you get the sacrifice, you'll earn forgiveness. See, God had something way different in mind when he brought the temple into the world. After Jesus turned over the tables and drove everybody out, who'd made the temple a marketplace, the religious leaders were angry, and they said, hey, give us a sign. What gives you the right to do this? We demand a sign from you. And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Of course, he was referring to his body, that he was was about to sacrifice. The resurrection, he was about to raise from the dead. And of course, they didn't understand. They kept demanding signs from him over and over and over. By whose authority are you doing this? We demand that you show us a sign. And after they said that one time to him, he answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. So you can write this down. Jesus is God's grace to us. Something greater than Jonah is here. It's very interesting that he applies Jonah's story to his own life. Jesus directly applies Jonah's story. Jesus went down into the depths. He went down to the pit, down to Sheol, to the land of the dead, three days and three nights, into the belly of the fish, into the tomb. But then he rose from the dead. And the incredible thing about Jesus was that he didn't die because of his own disobedience, right? That, that's what Jonah did. Jonah understood what put him there. It was his own idolatry. But See, Jesus died despite his total obedience to God. He was an innocent sacrifice on our behalf. Our sins, our disobedience, they get to be applied to him now. He took all that onto himself, put our sin to death on the cross with him. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Salvation requires this sacrifice. It's not just any old sacrifice. It's God's own sacrifice that he brings, not us. The perfect sacrifice, Jesus' body on the cross because salvation belongs to God alone. It doesn't belong to us. The final thing that we can see from Jonah's poem is this kind of response that he has to God's grace. He says in verse 9, I'll remind you, but as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, he finally understood that he wasn't in control. He finally understood that he couldn't dictate to God who should and shouldn't be saved. He finally recognized he needed saving. Not just Nineveh, he needed it. He saw his own need and repented and turned to God. And then he responded in an appropriate way. So you can write this down. Salvation demands a response from us. God's given us this good gift. We either accept it or reject it, but it demands a response. Jonah saw that God's grace is so amazing and such a gift that he responded by offering God a sacrifice in return. Not as a way to earn salvation, but as a response to God's salvation for him. The question is, what's his sacrifice? Like, what what is he talking about here in verse 9 when he says that? And no doubt we'll we'll figure out from the ensuing chapter in chapter 3 that it's his obedience to God's mission that he's talking about. The vows that he's made to be God's prophet, he will fulfill. He will go and take the message to the Ninevites, and we'll see that next week. So he sacrifices his control, his twisted sense of justice for the Ninevites, his lack of love for them, his own way, the way he thought was best. He lays all that down, he puts it to death so that he can follow God's way here. That's Jonah's recognition, he's responding. Romans 12 says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. See, in order to not worship idols and worship God, you lay your life down for him now in response to what he's done for you. And I'd submit to you that if you truly grasp God's grace and love and the miracle of salvation that he's offering to you, then it's impossible for you not to respond by laying your life down in response to him. Because Jesus laid his life down for you. How can you not lay your life down for him? We're living as a sacrifice now if we've responded to him because we're constantly dying to ourselves the desire to cherish idols. And we're saying, I recognize that I cherish this idol. I recognize that I cherish this idol, and I'm laying it down. I'm laying it down. I don't want that. I want to follow God instead. I know I'm going to regret cherishing these things and following these things. I know I'm never going to regret following Jesus. I'm laying it down. We're laying down our preferences. We're thinking of others as more important than ourselves. We're serving others. We're ultimately doing what Jonah had to do, share God's message even with our enemies so that they have an opportunity to know God the way that we do if you're a believer here, which is probably most of us, we're in church after all, right? And this is this is church, so we're probably mostly believers in here. Do you remember the moment that you believed? Do you remember the moment that you became a Christian? Well, we went around in our community group a few weeks ago, and I just asked the question, hey, uh, why are you a Christian? Like, what brought you to a place of belief? And, and I shared, I started by sharing my story. You know, for me, I, I'd grown up knowing God, you know, as a child, most of my life. I'd Raised in church, my parents shared the gospel with me, but I started being pulled away in middle school and then in high school because, like I said last week, I just wanted the American dream. I started cherishing other things, you know, and I started looking for answers in all of the wrong places. So I ran from God. But the whole time, I couldn't shake the fact that I felt empty inside. And then I finally had a moment of hitting rock bottom emotionally and spiritually. And I cried out to God in desperation in my freshman year of college toward the, toward the end of my freshman year. And, and when I finally called out to God and actually spoke to him, he was just so gentle and tender with me. Because I, I, remember, I remember hitting that rock bottom place just feeling so empty, so alone. Like, what am I even doing with my life? This is stupid. I don't feel good about it. And I sat down on our nasty dorm hall bathroom floor. Know, yeah, you know, on our dorm hall, it was like 60 guys and it was a shared bathroom, so it was gross in there, all right? But I didn't care. I sat down on the floor, and I was just weeping uncontrollably, and I just felt so alone. And I remember in that moment, that's when I finally turned to God, and I just cried out, and I said, God, I don't even know if you're real anymore. I, I just feel this way. You know how I feel if you're real. What, what do you want from me? And And I'm not a super spiritual person, if you know anything about me. I'm not like somebody who feels like God speaks to, and all that kind of stuff, but I had a moment where I think God spoke to me. Uh, maybe maybe the, one of the only moments that I've ever had God do this to me where I had a thought in my head that I know is from God very clearly and he said, just live for me. That's all, that's all I heard. I had that thought in my mind and, and, and he said, just live for me and I went, man, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. And so I got up off the ground. I didn't feel alone. I, I immediately felt God's presence in my life And then I started getting around other believers on my dorm hall that had already been sharing the gospel with me, trying to remind me of who God was to me. So I got with them, we started studying the Bible together, and I never looked back at that point on. I'm trying to live for Jesus the entire time now. Not perfectly, but I just remember that moment. I remember that special moment that I had where I cried out in desperation and God entered in. And so we went around our community group and had everybody share, and I asked everybody in sharing their story, we, we, we were all going around getting choked up by the end of the night. Everybody's starting to cry because they're remembering these tender, sweet moments where they had hit rock bottom or they were trying to figure things out and they were confused and chaotic, and then all of a sudden they met Jesus and they realized who God was to them, and it changed their lives forever. Maybe you remember that moment if you've had that kind of experience yourself. And I reminded our group, after we kind of you know, started wiping away all the tears and all that kind of stuff, I said, you had that moment, that special moment with God. Now I want to remind you that that's exactly what God wants for everybody else. Right? That moment of peace and presence and purpose that I felt, God wants that for everybody. He wants everyone in the world to feel that if they'll receive the gift that he's offering. Listen, if you've never had that kind of experience with him, you can right now before you leave today. You can recognize your need. You can see what it cost God. It cost a sacrifice. And you can respond in an appropriate way by laying down your life for him. Because he laid down his life for you. Turn to Jesus right now and believe him. Receive the gift that he's died to give you. I know sometimes we're stubborn. I mean, look at Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights before he turned to God. Can you, can you imagine that? Notice he didn't turn to God after God had him spit back up. That's what we're always waiting for, right? We want God to deliver us, and we want the good things, and once that happens in our life, then we'll turn to God. Nah, that's, it's usually at the depths of despair. It's usually in the rock-bottom moments. And that's what happened with Jonah. He finally turned to God in his despair, and he trusted him. don't you trust him today? Respond to his salvation. And as we start to wind down our time here, I want to I leave you with this. It comes from the late pastor Tim Keller, of course. St. Keller for us. He said we have to continue doing two things, learning the depth of our need, but also the depth of God's love. So you can write that down today really as, as our application. Learn the depth of our need but learn the depth of God's love for us. Consider how needy you really are. know, yeah? God, God may bring you to that rock bottom multiple times to help you remember it if you need him to do that, but he'll do that. He will help you remember your need if you don't remember it yourself. Just a little bit of a warning there, maybe. But I remember hearing Pastor Matt Chandler uh, talk about this one time. He said that as he grew more mature in his faith, he thought he would feel better and better about himself because he thought that he would become more and more like Jesus. So he's supposed to look more like Jesus in his thoughts and his actions and his words. And he said he was confronted with this idea that actually when you grow more mature in your faith, you're going to start to see how evil you really are more and more, not how good you are more and more. And I thought that was really interesting. And I had to chew on that for a little bit. In other words, he's saying that in the maturing process as a believer, the the longer you go on, in your life, the longer you follow Jesus, the more evil you're going to realize your own heart is, just like what Jonah's done here the more you're going to realize you have a need you're going to see that when you're confronted with his perfection versus your imperfection, it will humble you more and more but then we're also supposed to consider how much God loves us in response to that because he sent Jesus to save you and I and to extend grace to us, even though we don't deserve it So Jonah realized God is the one who put him right where he was. He was in the depths. And yet he saw it as a part of God's grace in his life. That's what's so beautiful about that because it helped bring him back to a place where he realized the depth of his need. Jonah began to understand that he needed God's presence. And he saw God's faithful love for him, even in the belly of the fish. You know? I think so many American Christians live such miserable Christian lives because we truly haven't grasped our need for grace, the depth of our need, but also the goodness of God's love for us. We're still in the pit. We walk around miserable with a chip on our shoulder. We think we deserve the birthday present, and we're wondering why we're not getting everything we want. Yeah, we think we deserve it because we grew up in church, or we waited until marriage to have sex, or we don't cuss in public, right? We avoid drunkenness and drugs, and we've lived an honorable life in every way possible in our own eyes deep down and you never say it this way you think God owes you you think he he owes you you've been good so he owes you salvation right easiest way to know whether or not that's you is how you respond when you're in the pit because eventually he's going to take you down into the depths do you lash out at God in anger or do you ignore him and ignore the problem or do you actually cry out in desperation and run back to him knowing that it's probably his grace that's even put you there. But it's also his grace that's going to get you out. See, it's time to learn salvation belongs to God, not to you, not to me, not to anybody else. Don't fight God on that. Don't be stubborn. Learn the depth of your need today, but learn the depth of his love for you. Let's pray, God.